they're above average phones, but not necessarily smart. Uh, if you go to uversion.com on there, you can actually find the Conduit Church group. Search for Conduit Church group at uversion. If you've got your, it's the Bible app, it's the uversion app, and we are on there. You'll find a live event under Conduit Church, all of the notes. I'm told that sometimes I go a little fast through the scriptures. And so if I tend to do that, then you can, oh, they're right there. I listed them all out. And I'll bet I get about 80% of them written out. There might be a couple of uh, extras, but you'll get most of them if you go there. Uh, Romans chapter 3. Would you pray with me? God, we are uh, anxious to let your word uh, be what you promised that it would be, which is a lamp for our feet and a light for our path that it would reveal to us uh, your will for our lives and that it wouldn't just be an academic exercise, but a spiritual encounter with you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 9 of chapter 3. Paul is saying, what then? Are we better than they? This is after, if you've been with us a couple weeks, he hit the Hebrews, the hypocrites, uh, the heathens, and the heirs. He covered all of us in the last two, uh, two chapters. And now he's hitting it, saying, well, now what do we do? He said, are we better than them? Uh, he says, not at all. And he's speaking we as in uh, Hebrews. Paul was Jewish. And he says that uh, we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. Verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is no one who seeks God they have all turned aside, verse 12. They've together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Verse 13, their throat is an open tomb. Mine felt like that last week. You know what I'm saying? Like some stuff that I was uh, hacking up. With their, with their tongues, they've practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips. To be careful how you say that one in church. Those whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness, very apropos, their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. This is great, isn't it? You're like, Darren, this is awesome. I'm so glad I got up for daylight savings time. Their feet are swift to shed blood, verse 15. Destruction and misery are in their ways, verse 17. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And now we know that whatever the law says... It says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and that all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, verse 20, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Verse 21, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation. We might want to mark that word. By his blood, through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. How did you feel this morning when the alarm clock went off? Good? You felt really great, didn't you? I, uh, 
I felt uh, downtrodden, I guess would be the word, the initial word. And then I felt angry. And then I thought, I bet the only person more angry in my house about this is my wife, who was up last night pretty late. And uh, so I thought, what is a better way for her to take out her wrath this morning? Not on me. But you guys just entered a Gallagher concert. But to (laughs) appease her wrath, uh, originally we were talking about Joe or Ben doing this, and I'm thinking, you know what? My wife was up till at least 1 o'clock last night, 1.30. And then when that alarm went off and just yelled at us this morning, um, you know, she didn't say anything, but I could sense it. So Shannon, I would like to give you this gift this morning. (laughs) The gift that keeps giving. I think that everybody should look away. In the words of the great poet Chicago, look away, baby, look away. I don't know. I got a, I got a bad feeling about this. We did, not, we did not try this in rehearsal. Now, t- now, go there in your mind. How did you feel this morning? The alarm went off. How did you feel? Go there. Just go there in your mind. You need to appease your wrath. Not on me but on that clock. Can you hold it for me? No, I'm not. <laughs> I don't know. We didn't really think about that. <laughs> As a, oh, there were good batteries in there. We could use this for our Xbox controllers, huh? Hope you didn't get those. The, uh, as I was thinking about that this morning, the appeasing of wrath, uh, it actually made me think of uh, someone else who had recently appeased his wrath. You might be familiar with Tommy Jordan. Point rounds 
from, uh, yeah, and you have to pay back for these two, because these are about a dollar a piece. <laughs> One, two, three, four, five, six. Oh, yeah. And I, after that comment you're, you made about your mom, your mom told me to be sure I put one there for her. So that was for her. If I got one left, I got two left. Now, now. So. Just for the record, whenever you're not grounded, whenever here that happens to be, you're going to have a new laptop when you buy a new laptop. My favorite part was when he said, if you ever see this, was 31 million people last night on YouTube. I was apparently the last. Actually, that's not true. A second to last, because Ren was the last of the 31 million people in America that have not seen it. If you're an adult, if you're a parent, you thought that was a hoot. If you're a teenager, you may not have thought that was as funny as, uh, as mom and dad. Because you don't understand the, you know, the parental things you have. And I actually had a little conversation with Destiny. Because, look, I'm a parent of the teenagers. And, uh, you know, God help us all. But you might have some things where you get angry. Would you come over here so I can reach you with a microphone? I asked Destiny this morning if... She could uh, think of some areas that her brother might... So we see what happens with a teenager, and you might think, well, that's really harsh, and I wouldn't do that to my kid. I'd never do that to my kid. Because you don't understand, right? Because you don't have kids. So there are maybe some areas in your life where you get angry at your little sibling, which I can't imagine, Christian, perfect, right? No. So what is, uh, what is the one thing that he does that irritates you the most, that you don't think your parents really understand? me when he mimics you and that and what would you like to do after a good long day of being uh, mimicked cut his tongue off in his sleep (laughs) thank you (laughs) some of you may want to put a heads up to Christian (laughs) Do you remember when you were 15, 14, and your little sibling, how angry you'd get? It's really a lot of fun to talk about the love of God. It's a little harder when we get to talk about his anger, his wrath. And, you know, we tend to stay away from it because you got the whack jobs in Topeka with the signs and the bullhorns and their anger because they've, they've clearly misunderstood what God is doing in propitiation. But on the other side of that coin is our misunderstanding of why God had to do that in propitiation. And you might be sitting here this morning saying, propiti, what? That's a, what does that mean? When God looks at the world as a father... And he sees what is going on in the world. And, you know, this week we have had a, a bird's eye view to some of that. If, if maybe some of you have ever, never heard of Joseph Coney before. Uh, Bethany is with us this morning with Exile International. And she is someone who has gone into Uganda to work with uh, the kids that have been uh, 
kidnapped and abused and the things that Coney has done to them. And it's a beautiful ministry. It's exileinternational.org. Because if you were here last year, we had Sam Childers, who has gone in and using some admittedly unconventional methods, uh, has rescued kids. But what do you do on the other side of that? What do they? And so, you know, Bethany and her ministry play a part in that. But I was thinking from the perspective of God who sees everything in a way that maybe I don't understand because I'm not God is the way that maybe, I, you know, we can kind of understand because we were once a teenager, but it's been a while for some of us, some of us longer. In the way that as a teenager, you don't understand why your dad would look at that and just howl and then forward it to all of his friends. Because Tommy Jordan got it. And maybe it would be better if we understood if we listen and hear and remember a story, maybe some of you are old enough to remember it, of a guy uh, named uh, John Hardy, Robert Hardy, sorry. Tyler, Texas, it's been about 20 years ago. He got up in the middle of the night to get a snack, as some are prone to do. Us full-figured men know that. And he wandered down the hall and he realized that the uh, Burmese python in their aquarium was gone. And he wandered into his, ran immediately to the baby's room. And the baby had been, it was, was gone. The python had uh, eaten, killed and eaten their, their child. And it's awful. And he did what any loving father would do. He picked up a knife and began to, actually I believe it was an axe, a splitting axe, and cut the snake open pulled this child, lifeless child out and just hacked this snake to bits. Because this is, and no, no father could ever look at that and say, that guy was not justified in his anger at what he saw that night. In the same way that nobody could really, if you think about it, look at what God sees when he looks from above and says, I'm a little angry about this because I'm seeing what sin does to you, to each other through you, to you, around you. And we would narrow it down to Joseph Coney, but I don't know, where do you stop at that point? Who do you make famous? Is it Assad in Syria? Is it Mohammed Yusuf? Who is up in the blue in the corner there? You don't know who he is. He's the leader of Boko Haram in Nigeria. Systematically, it's a uh, branch of Al-Qaeda. They've been systematically murdering Christians by the thousands. Do you make him famous? Do you make... Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, up there in the corner with the uh, very uh, thick and lustrous beard. The leader of al-Qaeda in Iraq. Haven't heard his name, but he's there, and he's murdering, right now as we speak, Christians, people, innocent people. Do you go with Brashir in Sudan? That's what our friend Sam Chapel or Sam Chapel, <laughs> Sam Childers, it's an old friend, Sam Childers would say, to make uh, him famous, because he's the guy that is not only financing Joseph Coney, but he is also uh, murdering senselessly his own people in Sudan. I don't know, do you go to Somalia? Do you go to Pakistan? Do you go to Afghanistan? Do you go to Russia? Do you go to Uzbekistan? Do you... There's a long, long list. And in humanity, we really only have the capacity for one or two of them at a time to really understand that I'm not, I do not, please do not hear me say that what Invisible Children is doing is not correct. I think it's fine. I think that this uh, jerk has infamous, we, we kind of know what he has done, but not knowing who he is, 
it's, it's okay. But if that's where we stop, I wonder if the Lord, if he were to start his campaign this year, so to speak, of who he would make famous, do you start with the guy that has senselessly and brutally murdered 30,000, or do you start with the folks at 10,000, 20, 150 million, 2 million? Or what about, what if it was uh, Kagan 2012? Or Stevens or Ginsburg or Breyer, the ones that are in charge of our Supreme Court, who would say that it's actually okay that 50 million of our babies have been murdered. And God looks down from heaven at that and says, I don't know, you know, I see them all. I don't need a bumper sticker. I don't need a sign. I don't need a poster or a website. I see it all. And he looks down on that and is understandably angry about it. And easy to look and say, oh yeah, that's awesome. I'm not one of those guys. Jesus in Matthew 5 would say, speaking of the, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, and he would begin to say, blessed are the poor. But he would then go on to say that you've heard it said, don't murder. And you think, I got that one. At least, didn't, I, mean, I might have killed my kid's laptop, but I haven't killed anybody. He said, but I'm saying, don't even be angry at your brother. He said, he's basically saying, this is the standard. And the reason is, is that because our anger isn't perfect. I get angry sometimes irrationally. I get angry incorrectly. Which is why the scriptures tell us to be angry and sin not. Because anger is a legitimate emotion. It's just that I'm not very good at it. Some of us are worse than others. But he says, if you're even angry at your brother. And he would say, hey, look, I appreciate this. Don't commit adultery. And you guys all think you got this. The Pharisees, who were the gold standard of holiness, don't even lust after a woman. And for the men in our body and the men around the world who struggle with pornography, you know what that means. And what it does, it robs and it steals, steals and it kills. And that's what he's saying in Romans 3. It's all, we're all on a level playing field on this one. And why is it, by the way, that God even allows this to happen? That's a legitimate question. How is it that God looks down and that there could be a Joseph Coney or that there could be pornography or that there could be murder? Or all? How is that? And it's really quite simple. In the book of Genesis God gave dominion to man. He said, look, I'm giving this to you. Dominion means it's your deal. I'm giving it to you. And what did man do? He listened to the hissings of the enemy and rebelliously, way worse than any Facebook post your kid could put about you on Facebook, gave it all over to the enemy. And so it is no wonder that Jesus would refer to Satan as the prince of this world. Paul would call him the God of this world. The prince of the power of the air. That on this side of heaven, this side of Jesus' second return, his second coming, that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. And in partnership with man, wickedness abounds everywhere. And he sees it all. And I wonder, maybe you wonder, how does God feel about this? If you think he is like Surrey and has no emotions, just a computer voice, that's just inaccurate. I don't believe that he is like man. We don't want to create him in our image. But when I look to the scriptures, I see that God is, has emotions, anger being one of them. 
And if you wonder how he feels about this, you could actually know just by reading in the book of Genesis chapter 6. I'll read it to you. You don't have to go there unless you have your little U version. You can click it. And it says that the Lord saw the great wickedness of the human race and had, uh, had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil at that time. And the Lord regretted that he had even made human beings. And so the Lord said, verse 7, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race that I have created and with them the animals and the birds and creatures that move around on the ground because I regret that I have even made them. But, oh, I love verse 8, but Noah found favor, found grace in the eyes of the Lord. When God looked down on the days of Noah, and by the way, what did Jesus say that in the days of my return, it'll be like in the days of Noah. And he looked down and it made him angry. It said, I just, he regretted it, he even did it. And I believe that when he looks down and sees what's happening, that he regrets, you know, the, the humanity, he's sad, he's uh, angry. He... And there is coming a time, by the way, of, uh, it's referred to as the time of Jacob's wrath. A time where that wrath will be poured out on a Christ-rejecting world. But in the meantime, what is the answer? What is the but in that sentence? The grace of God that Noah found. And I don't know about you You can write that one down. I'm sorry. It was, I, got an, I got an hour less of sleep. Some of them are going to miss. But the, this is it right here in Romans 3 is the plan. It's called propitiation. It's like what? Propiti what? The Greek word is halasmos. It is to appease his wrath. I don't have a word that I think fits perfectly, but I don't, it's almost like venting, venting his wrath. Sometimes you've got to just let it out, vent. And when we look to Romans 3, we see in the, in the, in the, uh, the rescue plan of grace, propitiation and justification. Justification is dealing with the legal side of the equation. That God is a judge, that he is going to look at the facts. And just like the, the smartest judge on earth times a million, God is still smarter and he sees everything and he knows it all. And so he can make a judgment call on that. And that's the judicial side. The, a crime has been committed, restitution must be paid, factual. But propitiation deals with the emotional. It satisfies the emotional side of God, saying that, he is rightfully angry. And rather than take your laptop out and shoot it, because I'm telling you what, that dad probably felt pretty good. Right? Just, I was gratified. And my daughter's a great kid. She'd never done that to me. And I'm like, oh man, I get it, brother, you know. I, it just, but God, how, do, how does that work with God? How can he be satisfied in his anger? How can he not cut your brother's tongue out? Right? How can he not cut mine out? And it is through the plan of, of propitiation. It's a huge word, and I get it. And I don't think that you necessarily need to understand or be able to repeat the word to know the word, but you really need to know the God and his personality and how it played out in this. 
the picture, I mean, the good thing about God is he knows that I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed. And so he would speak in pictures. If you remember, I think it's Mark 4, but he said that Jesus taught them in parables, and without a parable, he didn't teach them. Because he knows that I just kind of need a story to make it make sense. And if you've been around here a while, you've heard me once or twice reference the perfect story, the picture of propitiation that was played out in Numbers chapter 21. When Moses was traveling with Israel and they had just left Israel and they'd been out in the desert and they were angry at him and they began to complain and murmur. And it says in Numbers 21 verse 4 that they traveled from Mount Hor to along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. And, but the people grew impatient on the way. Have you ever done that with God? And they spoke against God and against Moses and said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no bread, there's no water, and we detest this miserable food. Notice there wasn't, there wasn't nothing to eat. They just didn't like what they had to eat. And then the Lord sent venomous snakes. If you remember back in December when we taught about snakes on a church, uh, Samuel L. Jackson did not play a cameo in that sermon, but there was the story that we brought out, and so I won't spend a lot of time on it this morning. But they were biting each other. The sin was in their camp, and it was the Lord sent snakes, and it began to give us the picture of what it means when sin enters our camp, so to speak. That it is poisonous. It's venomous. It's painful. There's consequences to it. And the answer was this very, very strange, seemingly. Moses probably thought it was really weird. You want me to do what? Fashion a serpent on a pole out of brass and stand up on the mountain and hold it in the air. And on either side were Aaron and I believe her and they, you know, the picture looking down on it would have been of uh, a man holding a pole and two men on either side, a perfect picture of, of what was to come, a picture that Jesus himself said was of him when he said in John three fourteen, two verses before the famous bumper sticker, was just as Moses lifted up the pole in the wilderness, he said that that was how he was going to be, that he would become Jesus, the serpent, a snake, but Jesus was perfect. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, that he who uh, was, knew no sin, was not, had no sin, became sin so that we might be able to become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Moses was painting the picture of propitiation for us. And the plan was very, very simple. God did not take his wrath out on you, does not take his wrath out on you, Second Thessalonians tells us that you're not appointed for wrath. Those of us that are believers that have become born again and are in the kingdom of God, that we are not appointed under wrath. And it's not because God winks at it and says, ah, you know, boys will be boys. You know how they're going to do. No, no, no. He's just and he is right and he sees all. And so the anger, the emotion, there's a, and we're going to talk about justification next week. Perfect lead up to, to Easter. Why is Easter like our Super Bowl for Jesus? Without the bad commercials, we're going to find, as we go into this, this is it. This is everything. But the propitiation, the piece where he would say, I'm going to do this. This is the plan painted throughout scripture. The, the perfect lamb that would be sacrificed, all of a picture for us of what Jesus was going to do. And that was to say, to take God's wrath that, that we deserve 
And instead of shooting our laptop, instead of shooting us, he would shoot his son, his one son, his perfect son who lived a sinless life. I could say that I want to take your punishment for you, but I can't because you and I are both on the same playing field. If I pay for your sin, then who's going to pay for mine? There needed to be someone who had no sin who could pay for them all. That was Jesus. The account is at zero. No money owed, no debt. Go Dave Ramsey. Your sin account is empty because Jesus would take it upon himself. And you might think, that's child abuse. Why not God then? If God, why would he make his son do it? This is something we can't possibly understand this side of heaven. Paul called it a mystery in 1 Timothy. He said, this is the mystery of godliness that God became flesh. God himself, Jesus, the Son, the Trinity, again, your mind, my mind, doesn't, it just doesn't go that far. You know that time when you do the like one, two, three, four through nine times one, two, three, four through nine and your, your calculator has the little E on it? That's it. Our calculator does not go higher than that. I don't understand that. But somehow God, Isaiah would say, chapter nine, that he will become flesh, that God, they will call him Prince of Peace, Counselor, Mighty God. He didn't just aim it at his son, he aimed it at himself. Tommy Jordan taken the knife, the gun, I'm sorry, and shooting himself, so to speak, to appease wrath. It doesn't work in our equation because we're humans, but he's God, he's bigger. And in doing so, his wrath is appeased, it is vented, and it is satisfied. That is propitiation. It's used five times in the New Testament. In 1 John 2, well, first of all, Romans 3.25, very foundationally, it's used right there. Propitiation. It's used in 1 John 2, verse 2. And you can write them down, go there later, or just go to version, and they're all there. That he is the propitiation for our sins, not just our sins. Oh, but I love this, but for the sins of the whole world. That everybody, the anger, when he looks down, that what he did in the way that he died, again, in a way that I can't comprehend on this side of heaven, everything that he suffered, the things that he experienced, I don't comprehend, but it was enough. Enough to even cover Joseph Coney should he repent and believe upon the Lord. Does he have to pay for his crimes this side of heaven? Absolutely. But when we get to heaven, will we look on the other side and say, righteous and true are your judgments, O God? Yes. Will he? I don't know. All I know is this is God is awesome, and whatever, however it works out, it's going to be the, better than the best ending of the hunger, hunger Games you could have ever hoped for. I'm assuming it ended well. I haven't read it because it's sold in the teens section. I just didn't, I'm just saying that it was in the teens section, Rob Hawkins. 1 John 4.10, it was used. He said, here in his love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us, sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins in a world that's gone crazy. The sin that is around us, he paid for it. He's satisfied in his wrath for us. Hebrews 9, think with me. Please do not tune out. The Ark of the Covenant was a box, three feet long, two feet high, but there was no, like, a, you know, if you've got at home, like a cedar chest, there's probably a lid that folds up, right? Not on the Ark of the Covenant. 
there was an open top looking into the box. And in the box would be Aaron's rod and a couple other things. But there was two things very uh, perfectly, which was the two stone tablets with the Ten Commandments perfectly kept in the box. Now follow me. See if you can smell what I'm stepping in. In this box, the perfect law of God, God looks in and he sees perfection. Think plutonium with me for a second. Think that could either light up our entire city or it could burn it down. Either one, the same power included in the same small dose of plutonium. Either one for you and I, when we don't have the control over it, it is going to kill us, it's going to burn us, it's going to scorch us. And God's answer for this was in Hebrews 9 when he said that the cherubim, verse 5, of glory shadowing over the mercy seat, a picture of the angels, and then a seat, the mercy seat, which was separate, that would be placed upon the top of the Ark of the Covenant, coming between me and what could inevitably kill me. The perfection, the perfect plutonium of God. You talk about the fallout. He protects us from that with the mercy seat. And that word mercy seat there is the word halasmas. It's propitiation. That is what comes between me and that is satisfies God's wrath. And it protects me from the perfection that would otherwise kill me. The plutonium that should have burned me will now empower me. The dunamis, spirit power of God, Acts 1, empowers through this. Every year on Yom Kippur, the priest would come in and he would sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. And one more year, another year where God would be satisfied because God knew that he was painting a picture of the perfect sacrifice that would come. So Jesus, our high priest, would never have to do that again. It was one sacrifice and it was done for you and for me. Now you might be thinking, great, Darren, that's uh, two, three, four. But what about the fifth one? Think with me. When you hear a message like this, you're thinking, there's probably two reactions in here. One is the, hey, I don't appreciate you uh, comparing me to Joseph Coney because I'm like a really good guy. I'm the nicest guy I know. I haven't killed anybody. I'm a, I'm, I'm a good guy. I'm a good lady. I, I, you know, I'm okay. There's that reaction. I don't understand it because I don't really feel like I've done anything that bad. There's another reaction, which is, whew, this really hits home with me. And thank God for the propitiation, for the anger that is not on me anymore, but it is on you. It is satisfied. Jesus spells it out so perfectly and so succinctly in Luke 18, verse 10. The two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, tax collectors then were viewed about as same as they are right now. Think about how Ron Paul might think about a tax collector. That's how they were thought about in that day. Ron Paul people, come on, somewhere. There's a billboard or something. Bumper sticker, somebody. Somebody. They would, in that day and age, they would actually take, the, the, the tax collector didn't even have a code. They'd just start stealing stuff. And if you've been to a developing nation, you're very well aware of how that works. And a little bit more, a little bit more until you finally get, you know, we were talking to David last week and there was, he had to pay his way out of some stuff again in, in Africa because there's a guy there that wanted to take a bunch of stuff. And so he had to pay what turned out to be about two grand in bribes to get it out. We've done it in Haiti before. Tax collectors were the scum of the earth. And so Jesus is now juxtaposing a, the scum of the earth next to who they thought was the dude, the man, the Pharisee. And he said that the Pharisee came in and his prayer, there are two prayers here. One is this. He stood by himself and prayed. 
God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers and evildoers and adulterers, or even like this tax collector, this scumbag. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get, but the tax collector, verse 13, stood at a distance and he would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. There were basically just a really short prayer there that that guy prayed. The first word was God, the last word was sinner, but in the middle is the word halasterion, which is the verb of halasmos. Be my propitiation. I, I, am the, I know that I'm the scum of the earth. I know that I have blown this. I know that I am a sinner. And I know that you have a right to be angry with me, but be my Halasterion be my propitiation. And Jesus says that I tell you, verse 14, that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all those who humble themselves will be exalted. Humility is very simple. It is looking in the mirror and believing the truth about yourself. And the truth about me is Romans 3, the first few verses. I didn't seek God, he sought me. We are not a seeker church because nobody seeks God. We are a seeker church because God seeks us. I am a guy that lies, that cheats, I've been, I've done dumb. I mean, I would never run for president because God only knows what they'd bring out. Do you know what I mean? Think about that for a second. Go run for president and see what they dig up on you. With me, it would start at Bible college. Actually, it might start a little bit further back than that. I don't want that. I can't make up for that. I would, there are people on the, this earth that if I bumped into, I'd be humiliated, embarrassed, because I, oh, I can't believe I said that or did that or the way I acted. And I am so glad for propitiation because it's God's way of paying my way out of it. Why does this matter? Why, does it, why should you care about this, about this word? Again, I don't care if you can walk out of here knowing the word propitiation. My desire is for you to know God. If you know about propitiation, it's big, you're going to, number one, be able to write these. We're going to go through these at a fairly fever pitch. We're racing the clock which we already lost an hour. You will stop crucifying others around you. If I understand that God isn't angry, that his anger has been satisfied, I will stop crucifying others every year. This year it's going to happen again in the Philippines. This tradition where they literally crucify people. Now we have joked about doing that here. Not for real, but we just think, you know, if we're going to be a church, we've got to have the Easter play. Remember we've talked about we could even burn some goulash in the, in the, and that could be the smoke come out of the, They could rise again from the cafeteria. Bucky uh, Elliott's beard is very thick and lustrous, so we're thinking maybe he might get to be Jesus this year. But what they're doing there quite literally is what we can do to each other metaphorically because I get angry at my family. I get angry at my coworker, and I crucify them. I nail them. I might nail them to their face. I might nail them behind their back. But I'm nailing them because I'm angry and because I don't understand that, again, I'm on the same playing field and the same wrath that God has for me has been propitiated is the same wrath that was propitiated for your wife, for your husband, for your grandpa, for your mother-in-law for your father-in-law, for your, for your co-workers, for your boss. Name the guy, the girl that just irritates the snot out of you and God's wrath 
covered that. I can stop crucifying each other. I can stop crucifying myself. And I'll bet most of this is the one that most of us deal with. I am not good enough. I am not smart enough. And doggone it, nobody likes me. It's Stuart Smalley in reverse. Because I don't get it right again. And now I'm beating myself up. I'm nailing myself. And man, if God's not mad at you, why are you mad at yourself? Is it possible that you know something that God don't know? God, I appreciate that, but man, you didn't see. I, this was like the 800th time. Satisfied. We'll never be satisfied if it were about us getting it right for 801 times. Satisfied. We don't really stack up. We were talking about this at Village on Friday night, and it was like I had this picture in my mind that I'm not good enough. Well, that's actually true. So congratulations, you figured it out. It's the false witness, though, of the Scripture, which is the right information, the wrong Implication. That's in the, the inf- it's correct that I, I'm not good enough, but the, that's, the implication is that I can't do it. But the implication from Scripture is, is that that's why Jesus came, because now I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. And so when I am beating myself up because I don't stack up, I'm trying to do something and uh, feel something that God doesn't feel. And ultimately, I'm rejecting the simplicity of the idea that is, I don't know how many of your kids are Lego kids. I don't remember being that expensive when I grew up. We were really poor, so we only got to hang out like with the neighbor's Legos. But the thing about a Lego is they're not very perfect. There are indentations and there are protrusions. And those indentations and those protrusions, if you wanted to sand them down to make them perfect so that your spouse is perfect and you sand down this thing about him or that thing about her, they don't lock together anymore. It is that imperfection Jesus promised through Paul was it in, he said to Paul, in my weakness or in your weakness, I am strong. In other words, in my weakness, you are strong. Wow. Again, the hour of sleep. But that weakness that I have is where, where Christ's strength flows through me and it's where the locking happens in relationships with the body of Christ because my weakness is your strength, and as soon as we, we'll quit whittling each other down so you look like me and I look like you, we lock it together. And you know what? Look, some, maybe the relationship isn't supposed to work because you've got the little corner piece on the Millennium Falcon, and you're supposed to be on the, the, the wing or the tail. You're just trying to put that piece in a place it wasn't meant to go anyway. You don't have to get mad at the wing. Just go to the nose of the plane and put your piece there, and you're it. You're happy. You're content, and you're locked together He's not angry at you. I can stop crucifying each other. I can stop crucifying myself. And I can start crucifying my flesh. Galatians 5.24. By the way, Galatians 2.20 tells us that I am crucified with Christ, yet I live. So when I'm crucifying myself, beating myself up, I'm literally jumping back up on the cross again. Doing it all over again. He's, no, no, I'm, uh, you're done with that. And anything else is just the Philippines. Just me doing a show that doesn't do anything. But when I start crucifying my flesh, when I'm crucifying the real me, okay, my spirit, when I'm beating myself up, and you know what I'm talking about, there's a difference between that and crucifying my flesh. Because when I understand propitiation, what I understand is that the reason that there had to be such an enormous price paid by God is sin is that bad. 
even the little stuff, there are repercussions that go long and far beyond what I can see and what I can know. He absorbed the wrath for me so that I don't have to beat myself up and so that I can then set about the purposes of crucifying the sinful nature in my life. And Galatians 5 does a great job of spelling them out. And by the way, when you're crucifying him, you're paralyzing him, you're isolating him. So if you're struggling with a sin, cut yourself off from it. Nail it to the cross. Cut off its life source. You're killing the sin. You're not killing yourself. You can crucify your flesh and lastly, you can pick up your cross and follow Jesus. If I'm nailed to it, I can't go anywhere. I am paralyzed. When I am hung up on the cross and crucifying myself because I don't understand that because he did that, I don't have to. I am doing nothing but completely paralyzing myself and not going anywhere. Jesus said there would be a cross, but I'm not supposed to be nailed to it. He told me that there would be a point in my life, your life, where we ought to pick up our cross, Luke 9 tells us, and follow him. If I'm nailed to it, I ain't going anywhere. And what that means for you, what that means for me, is there might be something that God has asked you to do. I appreciate it when I hear somebody say that this sickness or this thing, this is just my cross, and I understand what you're saying, but that's not what he's saying there. He's saying that your cross is something you've literally physically look at and say, I would rather not do that, but I'm picking it up anyway, and I'm going. It's something you have a choice to say yes or no over. Pick up your cross and follow him. If I'm nailed to it, I'm not going anywhere. I just look like an idiot. Bless his heart. That actually happens every year. And in our hearts, it happens, some of us, every day. There's one more picture that I want to leave you with. In the book of Numbers, chapter 20, Moses had once again wandered with the people. For, they were almost there. They were almost to the promised land. They could taste it. They were so close. In Exodus 17, they were in the same position, and they found a rock, and God told Moses to what? Strike the rock. And that water would flow from it, and he did, and it did, and it was awesome. And here we were at the end, a couple decades, probably four decades later almost. This time, he didn't tell him to strike the rock. He told him to speak to the rock. But Moses, <laughs> he had had it up to here with that. If you, I mean, you know, you know the drill. You know that time of day when I, and I don't know about you, but I have the time of day where I'm praying, God, please, please don't let one of my kids even see me because I know that if they say something wrong, it's boom, they've just clipped the wrong wire. And I'm not proud of that, but I, I feel it. I'm not trying to struggle with it. But Moses, they, they tripped the wrong wire and he lost it. And he spoke to the Israelis in a way to the Jewish people that he had never done before. He had cried out on their behalf. He had been upset with them, but if you read Numbers 20, he was lit up. He spoke to them with bitterness, with resentment, with judgment, and with condemnation. And he turned around, and to the rock that he was supposed to speak to, he held up his rod, and he struck it not once, but twice. And interestingly enough, water still came out because God uses imperfect servants all the time. I'm going to let you down. I want you to know that. Newsflash. I hope that if I let you down that you don't, uh, that you only tell one person and that is me. Wide open door to that. I'm going to do it. I'm going to let you down. I think that's the rule, right? Is if, uh, if I do something awesome, tell everybody. If I do something stupid, tell me. 
I'm going to do it. I'm going to screw it up. But it's because leaders do that, and God uses imperfect vessels all the time. But the reason that God was so angry that day was that he was painting a picture of Jesus. 1 Corinthians 10-ish, it talks about it, where they were drinking from the water. And, but this picture of Christ was that I don't have to beat. Jesus does not have to be crucified, struck over again. It was done. Now I just got to talk to him. And when I blow my stack, whether I'm crucifying myself or I'm crucifying you, I am striking the rock over again. I'm saying that your propitiation wasn't enough. I got one more shot I want to get at that one. There's one more bullet in my gun. Oh, there's two more. And when I understand the exact measurement and gift of what propitiation means for me is that God, his wrath was taken care of. I don't have to beat myself up anymore. Is there personal responsibility? Absolutely. But it's not from that source of condemnation, of striking the rock. God, I, I just got to get one more crack at that thing. Just let the water flow. All I got to do is speak to the rock and the water flows. But gang, here's the thing. If you've done it, this is the beauty, and we're going to worship just a little bit longer. If you've done it and you've struck that rock, water will flow anyway. Because that's the God that we serve, that rivers of living water, even in your sin, will flow and will cleanse and will wash and will refresh your souls today. Thank God for the gift of propitiation. Thank God that Genesis 29.1 is true. When Jacob, after he had, I mean, botched it big time, ripped off his brother, stolen, he went and he fell asleep at a place called, that he called Luz because it meant separation. Because he had blown it and it was over. And he slept that night on a rock. A, a, a guilty conscience makes a very uncomfortable pillow. And that night as he slept on that rock, God appeared to him, spoke to him, made promises to him. And he woke up that morning and he changed the name of that place from Luz, separation, to Bethel. God is here. And Bethel to you today. God is here. And he, it says, ch uh, chapter 29, verse 1, that he, he journeyed on his way. And that word journeyed on literally translates into happy feet. Not penguins. Happy feet. Your walk with Christ, if you understand propitiation, is, a, is happy feet. I can walk in the peace and the joy that comes from knowing that Christ absorbed my punishment for me and that God's wrath is appeased. God, thank you for your word. And my prayer today is that every one of us We'll be reminded, whether it's through Tommy Jordan or whatever picture you need for us to remember, God, that we'll remember that your word tells us I don't have to beat myself up anymore. And the enemy that would come and lie to me and say, man, you have botched it again. Happy feet to you. Happy feet to me, Lord. That we can journey on our way knowing that your wrath has been appeased. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.